welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Still blessed to have David M. with us. <laughs> Thank you, Portis. I'm David Maynard. I'm a sexaholic. Um, one time we were in a uh, fairly fancy restaurant. It was my wife and my mother and our son, who was about six years old, and and uh, myself and mother. My mom was taking us out for dinner, and and it was the kind of restaurant where at the end of the meal they bring the women roses, and it was very elegant. And they had a woman playing the piano in the center of the floor there, and uh, she was just playing away. And and we're those kind of irresponsible parents that let their kids wander around the restaurant. So, but he was being good and just sort of wandering and looking, and he wandered over by the piano, and all of a sudden I realized that the woman was playing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and Row, Row, Row Your Boat, and I realized she was taking requests. That's <laughs> Now, that was funny enough. The thing that really stunned me, though, and has actually affected my recovery, too, because this was long before I got sober, uh, is that nobody in the restaurant noticed <laughs> except us. And I, I remember I'd been sober about three months or maybe a little longer, maybe six months. It wasn't very long, though. And I shared with a woman where I worked uh, that I was a sex addict. And I basically, without going into detail of my behavior, explained what that meant. Um, and I had a reason for sharing it with her. It probably wasn't a very good reason, but I did. About a week and a half later, she basically, to make a complicated situation very simple, she put me in a direct working relationship with the woman I'd had my last affair with. And and she knew that that woman had been involved in whatever the problems were. And what I knew by her doing that was that my telling her that I was a sex addict, had not registered anywhere on her scale of consciousness, you know. And it was just like all the other patrons in that restaurant, you know. It, you, whether what we say and do is our business, what other people hear is God's business. And, and there's not necessarily any relationship between those two at all. There might be, but there often isn't. Which is why you can tell your wife over and over again how you've changed everything and it never connects because doesn't connect. But anyway, that's got nothing to do with anything. Uh, so all of that is preamble to I had a request. Uh, someone said, would you start off this session uh, with this? And I would love to do it. But I'd like to invite you to do it with me. So everybody who has a 12 and 12, would you drag it out? And what we're working on is page 99. And if you can just share it with someone next to you, if you have one. Um, 
And this is, by the way, is the answer in step 11 to the question of how do I meditate? Uh, and this is the first part of the answer. And, and let's, uh, if you're willing, please read together beginning with Lord. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love, that where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there is discord, I may bring harmony, that where there is error, I may bring truth, that where there is doubt, I may bring faith, that where there is despair, I may bring hope, that where there are shadows, I may bring light, that where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved, for it is by self-forgetting that one finds It is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. I had asked uh, for some time to talk about the traditions and our relationships to one another. And um, and I'm really grateful that I was asked also to begin with this and that you were willing to read it with me. as we were reading it, I, I memorized. I have memorized uh, for my own frequent use the third step prayer, the seventh step prayer, and this prayer. This one took quite a while to memorize, and also a passage. If you, if you want to look at it, it's on page ninety-two, just before there. Um, I've read it to several people in the last few hours. Um, that begins, finally we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill, as well as frequently wrong. Um, I've memorized those passages just because I need them so much, and I can't always have immediate access to the book. Um, It took me a while. I also memorized the seven steps, and then it took a little longer, and I memorized uh, seven traditions. And it's not because I was trying to uh, show off to myself or anybody else, for that matter. It's because I don't, first of all, I don't know when I'm going to need these pieces. What I do know is they work when I need them. And so I need to guarantee my access to them. And, you know, I was always pretty good at memorizing addresses and directions and body parts and scenarios. And it wasn't memorizing that I had trouble with. Uh, but willingness I definitely had trouble with. And so I justified it on that. The other thing that's happened, though, um, my first mentor in my occupation uh, was a person who memorized poetry, and he'd memorized just passages, too. And um, for a long time, he used to encourage me to do that, you know, to try it. And and I, I, I resisted probably because he was an authority. He loved me dearly. That's not the issue. But he was an authority nonetheless, and, and I just resisted authority on instinct. I finally, though, when I came into this program, began to do it. I had done a little bit of it ahead of time. Uh, I had memorized some poetry, and, and, uh, and I began to discover before 12-step recovery, and then since then I uh, discovered it a lot, 
um, why it makes such a difference. And as I said, it's not the memorizing, because I would put stuff in my head all the time anyway. Um, and it, it's what it does inside me. And particularly uh, the, the St. Francis prayer that we read together. Um, I have used every, I've used every piece of every prayer, but this particular prayer I've used in very concrete ways. Uh, first of all, what I found by memorizing it was that um, I was able to use it in what has probably been the time of greatest stress in my life. Uh, I was telling someone earlier, the, great, the biggest fights I ever had with my wife were after we'd been sober four and five years. Uh, and they went on for three or four years. They were just god-awful fights. They were so painful. They were so terminal. Roy kind of writes about the same thing in the white book when he, or is it Recovery Continues, one of them, where he talks about how the fights with his wife uh, weren't as frequent, but each one was more serious and more likely to lead to the end of the relationship. And that's, that's kind of what was happening for us. We weren't actually pulling on the relationship, but the the fighting with each other. And what got me through those fights over and over again was that prayer. And I, Jane would be just going off on me, and I would have this uh, going in my head, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. And in another professional situation I was in that was equally painful, I would literally have a sense of muck being cleared out of me on that channel, just sludge and gunk and roots and whatever else I wanted to have in my head. And and I just say, God, take it away. I just need to be open here and make me a channel of thy peace that where there's hatred, I may bring love. Well, usually that was, you know, I realize these are kind of in order. And and that was sort of always what got the prayer going. <laughs> that somebody was really upset. And and where there's hatred, I may bring love. Okay. Where there's discord, I may bring harmony. Well, that often is the case with hatred, of course, that there's discord. Where there's error, I may bring truth. Now, I would feel a little bit of hope at that point, you know. Um, but, of course, I would usually get caught by remembering it's not my truth. It's it's my higher power's truth. It's God's truth in the situation. And my odds of seeing it clearly aren't particularly good. Where there's error, I may bring truth. Where there's doubt, I may bring faith. And then, see, what had happened was by getting myself back in balance, Clearing the channel, dealing with the hatred, the dis, the, the lack of harmony, discord, uh, the error. Um, I got back to what was really going on in me. Because as I said, I think, to me, the, the two things that have made the most difference is just consistently in terms of staying in balance, or if I spot it, I got it. And if I'm disturbed, the problem's in me. Now, if I'm disturbed, the problem's in me is in 12 and 12, in the step four, I believe it is. It's also in our white book. If I spot it, I got it, isn't really anywhere in there, but it's in indirectly. Uh, it's the psychological mechanism, it's projection. But I find if I spot it, I got it, it's clearer to my fuzzy brain. And so what happens is that I lose faith. I lose faith on a daily basis that this program works. I lose faith that I can stay sober. I lose faith that um, that other people are not going to abandon me. I mean, all those things. You know, I would call up my sponsor and say, "Oh, you know, I'm not going. This job is just impossible. They're not going to keep me. You know, it's going to all fall apart." And he'd say, "David, did they write you a paycheck this month? Yeah, they did. Well, then shut up and wait for the next one." So okay. <laughs> so. What I would go back to is, where then I would, so then I would get to that next part where there's doubt, I may bring faith. And all of a sudden the prayer 
begins to turn to benefit me directly. It's not only clearing out the craziness. Um, where there's despair, I may bring hope, because that's what's underlying it, the hopelessness, you know, uh, that finally God has seen the light and has abandoned me. I mean, that's the sentence, which if I say it out loud is really crazy, but that's what's in my head. You know, that finally I'm abandoned. Finally I'm going to die. Finally it's all over with. My sponsor, um, I would call him up and say, you know, I'm really scared of death because I have cancer and I don't have it actively right now, but I had it and I had surgery and all that. And, and I said, I'm really scared of dying. And he said, well, David, I've died four times so far, or almost died four times. And he says, after a while you get used to it. <laughs> I'll be damned if he wasn't right. You know, I hate it when they're right. You know, um, in fact, though, that's that's the truth. We can even get used to the it's not death, of course, it's the fear. And then he called me up. We'd had this conversation. He called me up. He was afraid of dying. Well, by then I said, oh, you'll get used to it. You know, I mean, give them back what they gave you. Right. And um, and it worked out wonderfully. Uh, and in fact, he, he died in the, just having ended a SA phone call. I mean, it was a perfect ending in that respect. And, um, so where there's doubt, I may bring faith. Where there's despair, I may bring hope. Where there are shadows, I may bring light. And all of a sudden, it ties directly into our recovery program. Because what is it we say? We say we bring this darkness to the light, you know, that this fungus grows in us until we expose it to the sunlight. And, and, and I realize that practicing these principles in all my affairs means that we can do this with everybody. You know, we can bring everything to the light. And to this day, that's the most powerful thing I can do if I'm willing, which I'm sometimes am, sometimes not. Uh, if I bring it to the light, it loses its power. Now, we say that from the first time a newcomer comes in the room, we say that, you know, bring it to the light, bring it out in the open, it'll lose its power. It's a long way from head to heart, as uh, some friends of mine say. And, and it just took... Uh, I don't know, nine, ten years for me to feel that that really is true. That if I just bring something to the light, it'll, it'll be all right. Whatever it is. Maybe it's death, but so what? It'll be all right. Um, where there's shadows, I may bring life. Where there's sadness, I may bring joy. And by that part of the prayer, I'm really kind of blotto. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, I've been sober a while. And as I said, when I got sober, I had the fear of acting out again. I mean, just, it was really in my face for a long time, but it, it ebbed over time. And then there was the rage and all that sort of uh, craziness that goes along with that. And certainly that comes back now and again, but not very often anymore. And then the next thing um, was just fear in all its form. And that's really where I began with every relationship. It was evaluated in terms of fear. What am I afraid of in you? What are you afraid of in me? What are we both afraid of? What do we know? What should we be afraid of? And it just was omnipresent. It was somewhere in that process that I realized I had this hierarchy inside me. And and I've Roy has some of it in the white book and some of it's in the AA literature too. And that is on the very surface of things, I have my anger. And it's kind of like this little scared kid keeping the world at bay, you know. It's that kind of anger. Under that anger is fear. And um, fear of almost everything. You know, hundred. my sponsor, he was so obnoxious. One day I was saying, yes, I'm afraid of a hundred forms of fear, because that's what it says in the white, in the red, in the big book. And he said, oh, that's great, David, write them down. It was really humiliating. I only came up with 68. Um, 
Because I always assumed I would have a perfect 100, you know, on the fear test. Uh, but uh, so far, I haven't gone back and see if I could add, but, but I knew there was a lot of fear going around. Well, what I came to realize was, as I got more comfortable with the fear, is that under the fear is sadness. Even talking about it gets me. Uh, there is such a pool of sadness, you know, of little kid being hopeful about this, that, or the other. It might have been magical thinking, but it was still a little kid being hopeful, a little me, I mean, and and things that others had done to me, things that I did to them. I remember when I, I, I came to terms with the kind of sexual abuse I experienced as a kid that was probably inadvertent, but to me it was devastating, and it led to my voyeurism and mentally undressing women and and uh, and the constant pursuit of, of accumulating body parts. And, and, and it all probably stemmed out of this one kind of stuff. And uh, and then there was the way I disconnected from... I, I really stopped growing emotionally when I was five years old. So that makes me 18 now. Uh, and um, and that's really sad. You know, a little kid... As I said, I look at little kids and I, I look at a nine-year-old and I think, geez, I've been four years into this by that time. I look at a ten-year-old and I think, boy, are you in for a surprise this year. You know, and it's got nothing to do with them, of course. It's me. And there's just a lot of sadness in this disease. And then then there's what we did as teenagers and what we did as adults and what we did to our family members and loved ones. And, you know, and to even touch that sadness seems so overwhelming at times. And yet, that's where the answer lies. You know, it's not in the rage, although I can do that at the drop of the hat. It's not in the fear. Although it seems omnipresent, it's not when I actually write them down, but it's there. It's in the sadness. You know, there's just a lot of stuff that really has been difficult, betrayals, failures, you know, and it's just sad. And when I can stay in touch with that, I, well, first of all, I get speechless. Secondly, um, it's okay. I was telling someone at lunch when I can stay in the level of sadness with my wife, it's okay. Or with my sponsor or people in the program or my kids. Or When I get off in some other level, it may be all right, but it's often not. So that's in that prayer. Where there's sadness, I may bring joy. And this is a program about being happy, joyous, and free. If we work step three, turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him, we will be happy, joyous, and free. So, if someone's not happy, joyous, and free, they probably are still practicing turning their life and care of their life over to God. That's been really reliable for me. And, and what I've found is that that is what happens. When I touch that sadness, which I was so terrified with of all those years, I find joy. Because what I find is that real connection with God, with other people, with this world that I thought I never belonged in, you know, that I didn't know how to handle it. And I figured out how to handle it by staying drunk all the time. And and that made things worse. So even my solution made things worse. And it just kept going worse, you know. And, and then I found a bunch of drunks, sex drunks, and, and it's gotten better. 
And that's really my theme is it keeps getting better. You know, it's, it just keeps getting better. Um, but it comes out of being willing to find the joy in sadness, which I didn't even know was on the list of choices. Well, then, may I seek to comfort rather than be comforted, to understand than to be understood, to love than to be loved. Okay, that's pretty straightforward stuff. It's by self-forgetting that one finds. It's our whole program right there. <laughs> you know, It's by forgiving that one is forgiven. And that is really tough. That's all i got to say. It's tough. It works. It's just tough. Then there's that last little piece, and, and this is what came out of the memorizing. That's really one reason I'm going through all this. It's by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Now, even as a non-practicing atheist, I had trouble with that eternal life stuff. And one day, I was just saying the prayer. This is probably eight or nine years ago now. No, not that long ago. Six or seven years ago. One day, I suddenly... I had some switch flip on in my head. And I thought, what's the one infinite thing that I have experienced sober? Well, that was easy. This moment. You know? Not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. It's always here, it's infinite, goes on forever. So what is dying, awakened to eternal life mean to you, David? Well, it means that I let go of yesterday, I let go of tomorrow, and I live in the one place I can live, which is here and now. And that's also, I had previously understood, that's where my higher power is. He's not yesterday and he's not tomorrow. He's only here. So all of a sudden I realized that even that little phrase at the end, and it was just because I had it rolling around in my head over and over again, and I kept working on it and wondering what it meant, and, and that connected. There are lots of things. There'll be different things for you. It might not be this prayer. It's a great tool. Uh, this prayer is very useful, by the way, because it's so long. So if you're in a crunch situation, you know, Jess always said, if you need something really quick, try God help me. He says, real quick, short, you know, God help me, God help me, God. You can get a lot of them in in a minute. But if you need something just to distract you for a long time, this is a great prayer for that. It just goes on forever, you know. By the time you get to the end of it, you'll probably forget why you started it. But even if you remember, just do it over and goes on and on. So they're all useful in different ways. I've used all of these things in times of great stress and also in times of great joy. I have threatened to talk about the traditions, and I'm going to, I guess, here's what I would like. Uh, I'd like someone to read a tradition. I'd like to say something about it from my experience and work our way through all 12. And then whatever time's left, we'll just talk about anything you have in relation to these things. Um, that'll keep us moving. And I don't care who reads it as long as somebody does. So if somebody start with Tradition 1, uh, if you have 12 and 12, they're in our big book too. Um, if somebody just read them. Hi, Jim. I'm Jim. I'm a sexaholic. Tradition 1. Our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Um, you know, if this group wasn't here, and if that meeting hadn't been there in room 347 of the West End United Methodist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, I wouldn't be here, and I wouldn't be sober. And I'm so dependent on this program existing 
That's our common welfare. And personal recovery depends on AA or SA unity. Also, in my own life, I have to remember that my life is very much dependent upon the integrity of my family, my wife and my children, the integrity of my job, you know, my employers and the people I work with and, and work with, the integrity of our traffic system and our air traffic system and food delivery system and shelter system. And, and I have to really understand that it's unity in those that gives me life. And so I spent so much of my life thinking I had to be outside of, on top of, away from, whatever, and just to see myself that our common welfare has to come first, and my personal health depends upon doing it together. Um, and, and that's how I deal with Tradition 1 in my life. Tradition 2, anybody? Hi, I'm Roger. I'm a sexaholic. Tradition 2. For our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Um, you know, I, by nature, as a sexaholic, I'm a boundary invader by nature. And I also don't like authority. You know, it's just wired in. I'm independent. I fly under my own flag, at least in, what is that thing they say, a legend in his own mind, you know? And and I was thinking of that this morning about my professional life. I thought I still do a lot of that. I'm a legend in my own mind. And um, I just have to uh, go, go back to that. Uh, where's the source of authority that actually works for me? And it's definitely God uh, as I understand him. And more importantly, it's higher power as he comes through the group. And again, it's like the groups I mentioned a minute ago. It's not only SA. It's all the groups I'm a part of. Um, now, this part's been very useful. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Um, I realize also there's a part of me that always wants to govern. Although I'm sort of an all-or-nothing sexaholic, like some other people have mentioned, and so I, I like not only either want to govern or be governed, you know. In other words, I want all the responsibility or none of the responsibility. And now when I say it out loud to you, I can hear myself saying that, and I think, well, that's kind of dumb. Why don't you just be a part of the gang and do your part and go along? Well, that's, that's what it's all about in this tradition, is being a part of the gang and doing my part. And I don't have to be in control, and I don't have to be irresponsible. I can just do my part, and and that's sufficient. Uh, the other thing is about group conscience. Um, that's just an act of faith, and I have to uh, remember that my higher power is always speaking to me. This is particularly important when an officer has just pulled me over for speeding or something. Uh, society is always speaking to us in all the things we do. Our wives are always speaking to us. And at that moment, there are higher power working, you know, so that we can be a better part of the system. And I just, I just find I have to keep going back to that awareness. Uh, three. I'm not sexaholic. Um, the only requirement for S, for AA membership is a desire to stop drink, drinking. Or in our language, yeah, the only requirement for SA membership is a desire to stop lusting and to become sexually sober. We, we kind of added that uh, part, which AA doesn't have. Uh, this isn't how it applies in my life per se, but uh, that there are places where we diverge from AA. They're I, very dependent on AA. I'm not an alcoholic, as I said, yet. Anyway, I could be, I guess. But... Um, 
but it, I really feel the power of the program in these books as expressed in our sexual addiction fellowship and the literature and stuff. But we do diverge at places. And one of the places we diverge is where we say not only the desire to stop drinking, to become sexually sober. It's, and I think it's partly the insidiousness of this disease. You know, alcoholics, and I'm not taking their inventories, I'm trying to be descriptive here. Alcoholics and cocaine addicts and heroin addicts really have the luxury of having to take a cork out or take a bottle cap off or find a syringe or find a cooker or something, you know. I don't have that luxury. I took a guy to the airport once from a treatment center and he was going off to the Betty Ford Center because he was a physician who had started injecting Demerol into his stomach. And he said, boy, it was a quick rush. And I said, well, what do you do with the needle? Because I knew he was a doctor in his office and he had to get rid of the needle in the sharps container. And he said, it hits in five seconds and it's just enough time to get the needle in the sharps container. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And, and so I took him to the airport and he went on his way. And I was calling my sponsor and I got home and I said, uh, you know, he said uh, that it takes five seconds and that gave him time to get the needle rid of the needle. And he said, David, how long does it take you to get a hit? I said, oh, I don't know, maybe three, four milliseconds? He says, yeah. He says, so by the time that guy had his five seconds, you've had 500 hits. Oh, well, you know, I thought I sort of made up that number, the milliseconds. It turns out I was wrong. It's not 300, three milliseconds, it's 300 milliseconds, one-third of a second. Uh, is about the time it takes from a visual stimulus in, coming in, to hit the hypothalamus. Turns out there's actually a brain correlation for this thing. And so actually in five seconds I got 15 hits. Well, you know, we exaggerate a bit. But the point is that um, becoming sexually sober really is something we have to add because we don't have the luxury of having that interface between us and our drug. It's just in us instantly. Um, as far as uh, working this personally, um, I guess, and this, you know, we've talked a lot about marriage today, off and on too, both in public and private. And this applies to marriages and applies to people coming in the program, in my experience. Um, I, the longer I'm around this fellowship, the clearer it is to me that I don't know what anybody needs to get sober. I don't even know what I need to get sober. But I definitely don't know for anybody else. What I do know is that I've seen lots of people, individuals and marriages, come into this fellowship, I've seen them be in absolutely terrible, atrocious shape. I've also seen them frequently come in and do really well, and then they get into absolutely terrible, atrocious shape. And at any given moment, I want to say, oh, well, the way it is today is the way it's always going to be. There's only one problem with that. It's a lie. It's just a flat, bald-faced lie. It's just my ego saying, well, the way I've seen people kill themselves, literally. And I've seen thousands, if not hundreds, at least hundreds, maybe thousands of people come and leave. The one thing I know is I hope they'll come back. And I hope when they come back that there's the same circle waiting for them that was waiting for me. And I hope through God's grace that I'm there sitting in that circle. Someone read Tradition 4. I'm a sexaholic.
Each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or sexaholics as a whole. Uh, for me, in practice, this means not only what it says about our groups, but also uh, that I need to take responsibility for my own life, and I need to also always evaluate it in terms of how am I affecting other families, other people I work with, whatever, and also society as a whole. And my point in all of this is to say these traditions, yes, they affect how we relate to each other. They also affect uh, how I need to live my life in a, in a healthy way. Uh, tradition five. Forest, addicted lust. Tradition five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the sexaholic who still suffers. Um, I do two things with this tradition, and this one's in my mind a lot. I suppose of all the traditions, tradition one and this one are the most common. Well, that's not true. Tradition 11, too. Um, and that is this. Uh, first of all, that I lose track. Our groups lose track, and I lose track constantly on why am I here. And I have to remember, I'm here to carry the message that was handed on to me and give it to someone else. And I don't know who is going to receive it, but I do know my job is to give it. And the other thing is I need to remember that it's only my ego that tells me I have to be able to do everything well. You know, I'm supposed to be the good and the best or okay or something at everything. And I once I was sitting in a meeting, I'd been sober probably about a year, and uh, I was sitting next to a guy who was a salesman. And, and he was wonderfully colorful in his language. And, and he was describing how he had to fill out his sales slips by hand, and they had to be perfect. And he could go through 20 of these sales slips trying to get it perfect. And he'd tear them up and throw them out. And his name was Jimmy, and I was sitting next to Jimmy, and I was thinking, Well, Jimmy, I'm glad that's your problem and not mine. You know, I, I'm just a messy kind of slob. And I had no sooner gotten that I'm just a messy kind of guy out of my brain, I didn't say it out loud, when I just had this cold chill sweep over me and I realized, no, David, I mean, yes, David, that's true. You don't pretend to do anything perfectly. You just pretend to be able to do everything. And in many ways, I was a lot sicker than he was. Uh, and it definitely was screwing up my life. And the longer I'm sober, the clearer it's been to me that if having one primary purpose is not a liability, it's an asset, not only for our groups, but for me. And, and if what I can do is I probably spend, I don't want to exaggerate, but I probably spend two to three hours a day on program stuff one way or another. Uh, you know what? That's wonderful. Not only keeps me sober, it's something I can do. I can be useful. And that's a primary purpose. Somebody do Tradition 6? I'm Greg, sexaholic. Tradition six. An AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Uh, you know, there are several of these steps right here that uh, seem kind of just businessy, you know, and they're easy to gloss over. Uh, I, it was just in the last uh, three or four months that I came to realize that that from where I'm, I'm fairly involved in terms of our international uh, structure. And um, if there's any one place where we get most hung up today, I think it's tradition six. 
And it's kind of, it hit me, because, you know, we're pretty careful about not um, getting directly involved in a facility or something like that. In fact, most of the time, we're just trying to hide. Uh, but, um, but in fact, um, we're open to that and to tying ourselves into patterns. Uh, and I'm not trying to be vague. The specific interest is, is who owns the copyright to our literature. And I realize we've been violating Tradition 6 for a long time, and it's it's kind of given me a different way to think about that. But I'm not trying to get into essay politics, because, I, again, I have to work this in my own life. And where it's come into concrete things is I was always really good at giving away family money for other causes, um, giving away family time for other causes. It might be work causes. It might be some volunteer opportunity. It might be friends. Um, and what I had to come to terms with was that my primary purpose was to, you know, have a healthy family, have a relationship, take care of my life and my family life first, spiritual life first, family second, and then everything else. And and I would screw around and, and sort of commit money, property, prestige to various causes and lose uh, the primary purpose. And, and so all of a sudden, step six, uh, tradition six became live for me. I'm Van Sexaholic. Uh, every essay group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Uh, we're not too good at this, but uh, and I hear in AA them being much better at it, and that is when someone comes in and they're fairly new and they're unemployed, their AA sponsor is probably going to say, get a job. And the person will say, well, I can't find a job. Well, Get any job. Well, I don't want just any job. Well, that's all you deserve is any job. Uh, and that learning to take responsibility for myself instead of depending on other people and has been so tough. And, and if there's any one tradition that I have to actively work in my life, it's this one. Uh, and to, you know, be fully self-supporting, not in the sense of, of arrogance or I don't need you, but just in the sense of I'll earn the money I need and pay the bills that I owe, uh, and I don't won't depend on other people to do it for me. Um, and it's really it's very humbling uh, over and over again. Tradition eight. Somebody. I'm Robert, sexaholic. Sexaholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional. But our service centers may employ special workers. Um, I can't uh, say that that's easy one to identify in terms of my personal life, except in this respect. And it's very important institutionally to us uh, to be non-professional and also to have people in central office and William up in Seattle doing uh, the uh, correctionals thing. And that's the authority under which we hire people. But what I have found uh, is that there's a part of me that wants to bring my business life home. And there's a part of me that wants to think my home life should be organized in a certain way. And and to realize it's okay to be non-professional, to just kind of bumble along and do the best job we can do together and not have a sense for the standards or how it ought to be. And, and that's how I work that tradition in my life. Someone want to read nine, please? Keep getting different people if we can. SA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Uh, like eight, 
I, I can't say I easily translate that into my own life. Uh, it's, again, very important to us institutionally. We have a whole bunch of service committees. Uh, it's a great place to uh, way to stay sober. It's also a great way to hide. Uh, a friend of mine um, uh, was using a service opportunity essentially as a way to hide, and he's now serving a 12-year prison sentence, which since he went in at age 63 probably is a death sentence for him. And um, so service is not a panacea. Uh, it has to be the spirit in which we do it. And, and if it's honest, open, and willing, it's going to be fine. And, and if it's not, it can be just as disastrous as anything else we do in our lives. Um, what I have found um, is that I can sort of have things going on in my life where I have direct responsibility, and those I have to take care of. But there are lots of things that I'm not directly responsible for. I'm not responsible for the highway system. I need to be responsible for my operation on the highway system but you know if i want to get all in a blither about the highway system in general that's just my ego again getting myself out of my field uh tradition 10 my name is rich i'm a sexaholic tradition 10 alcoholics anonymous has no opinion on outside issues hence the aa name ought never be drawn into public controversy um I don't know if you've ever read this section in here, but um, what it's done for me personally, let me say this is a big issue for SA in my opinion, and that's what you're getting is my opinions, and I think it's a live issue. I don't want to get into it any more than that, but I do think it's cost us dearly. In my own individual life, however, um, I guess, you know, my wife and I go through this a lot. She'll have something happen in the neighborhood. Let's say abandoned cars on our street. That's a common one. And she'll just get apoplectic about it, about how people are, you know, trashing the streets. And we both call them in and they get towed. And, that, you know, we kind of carry our weight on that. But but what she's coming to realize is she recently has been, you know, it's her distress about it that really causes the problem. It's not the cars on the street. We can do something about that. Well, I found that that's been very helpful to me because a lot of times I want to get distressed about some issue outside of myself and I don't have to have an opinion. And and that's what this tradition gives me is the freedom to not have an opinion. I always thought I had to have an opinion about everything. And as I said, one of my weaknesses is, you know, that I'm good at everything, right? I mean, in my head. And so I want to have an opinion on everything. And it turns out I was wrong, like so many things. Eleven? Um, oh, who are you? Uh, tradition eleven. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Um, this one tradition has probably, is probably more responsible for my marriage uh, making it to 12 and a half years than anything else. Um, and, and it's also uh, responsible for just a whole bunch of changes in how I work with other people, and, and not just in the program, I mean just in my regular work life, how I live with my neighbors. Um, and that is to let God... You know, to do my part, to to live a decent life, to speak up for the things that are important to me, that's all fine and good. But what I want to do is I want to do that, and then I want to control the results. You know, and by the way, since I have been so good, so patient, so loving, so generous, so whatever, therefore you should, and of course carry that into a marriage or into a workplace or neighborhoods, it's a recipe for disasters. And the way I have to live this tradition is 
that what works is to let God use me as attraction rather than promotion. Now, of course, I always want to promote David. I mean, the world revolves around me anyway. Why not promote me? And, you know, I say it out loud. Again, it sounds crazy, but that's what goes on between my ears. Well, to let God simply let me be attractive is very humbling. And I think it's important for us as a fellowship, but more importantly, it's important in my life uh, to not take care of how other people react to me. And and one of the phrases that saved my life uh, in this program early on was, other people's opinion of me is none of my business. Now, like the spot that you got it, I used to go around and tell people that. Other people's opinion of me is none of my business. And they, they looked at me just like you did, just like that. Really weird, you know. And I deserved it. It was weird. Because well, I was I was still focused outside. I was focused on your opinion of me or their opinion of me. And that wasn't the problem. didn't matter what your opinion of me is. It's when I made your opinion of me my business, I went insane. I went totally bonkers. Because I would get into my codependency, change you, control you, you know, uh, appease you, whatever stuff. And this step, this tradition is all about that, you know. Let it be attraction. Uh, last one, someone. I'm Jay, and I'm a sexaholic. A tradition 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thanks. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for, I'm going to talk about it. I just want to say something first. You've been really patient. This is a tough piece. I said, I don't want it last, otherwise you'll end up not thinking there's any good in this whole day. Uh, and I don't want to skip it. And I asked for it to be right here. Um, my experience, what I, this isn't my experience, that's a lie. What I was told is that I had to work the 12 traditions in my life just as I had to work the 12 steps. Now, that's it's true for the um, steps that they bring me life. What the traditions do is exactly what it does for us as a fellowship. It brings me back with other people in a healthy way for the first time. And I just didn't know how to do it before. And and finally, it's opened that door. One of our uh, women who speaks, uh, Robin, some of you may know her, has a tradition sponsor just for that purpose, uh, to help her work the traditions. I haven't gotten that far, but and I admire her doing it. Um, this last one, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Now, anonymity means secrecy in some way. You know, and I don't do secrets very well, so I'm, I'm not comfortable with that so much. But what I have found is that since I, I broke my anonymity for the first five years in this program, cost me a job, cost my family a home and a relationship uh, that was unnecessary. It was the best I could do, but it wasn't. It, it's just what happened. And it really was my breaking my anonymity in the secrecy sense by making other people who hadn't asked for it have to deal with it. They had to deal with someone that they otherwise had a certain sort of image of, me, as a sex addict. And they, some people said, that's fine as long as he's got it under control. But some people just totally blew up. Now, it's easy to say, probably because of their own issues. Well, that's true. Probably was. Totally irrelevant, but probably true. You know, they still couldn't handle it. And it was my decision, and it took quite a while in this program for me to realize 
that, first of all, it was another form of boundary invasion on my part. And when I finally got to that piece, I was very humbled because that's so I M.O. And the other thing is a big chunk of my disease since I was a little kid has been taken off my clothes in public to get attention. And breaking anonymity was a spiritual equivalent of exhibitionism. And when I got to that step, it was it really fried my brain circuits in a healthy way. They needed it. But the other thing is this. Anonymity also means we're all equal. No one is higher. No one's lower. We come in as equals to this program. We have a common problem. We have a common solution. And anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions because we all come in as equals to work this program together. And it actually is the thing that allows us to be together and to simply share with each other from our experience, strength, and hope and help each other down the path. And for that, I can never be sufficiently grateful. Let's, uh, let's take a break. And we resume again at 5 of 4, right? I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.